This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Great Walls, a podcast about the men and women that served at the old Idaho State Penitentiary. This is Anthony. I'm talking here with Sky. Hi. Well, should I just hit it off? Go for it. Today, I am talking about Mr. George Hamilton. That name might be familiar to anybody who's come to the old pen to visit. George Hamilton is the individual who designed a certain building on the site, and mm-hmm. we'll get to that in just a moment here. So George, of course, is a bit of a mystery. Uh, we may never know his true name or anything about his real past. On his intake paper, he listed his age 28 years old in 1895, so I believe he was born around 1867 or could be 68. Uh, He states that he was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, and Cincinnati is in Hamilton County in Ohio. So could be that that is where he came up with his name because George Hamilton is a clear alias. He was trying to hide his identity basically to avoid assoling the famous name of his his family, his parents. Uh, so what, what we know about George, in 1895, he finds himself in Nampa, Idaho. And Nampa was actually a, a pretty recent development. And it started in the 1880s with, like many Idaho towns, the construction of the Oregon Short Line Railroad. And the railway passed from Huntington, Oregon to Granger, Wyoming, passing through Nampa. And it's thought that the name Nampa comes from the Shoshone Indian word meaning uh, Nam, which means footprint or moccasin. And so I found on the City of Nampa website that the Shoshone in the area would often stuff their moccasins with sagebrush during cold weather to keep their feet warm. And this would make their footprints larger than, you know, a normal typical size. So left these giant footprints in the snow and mud during winter months, which I thought What a cool way to come up with a name for a town. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) The first establishments in Nampa began 1885, so 10 years prior to this crime occurring. And there's this couple named uh, Alexander and Hannah Duffs, D-U-F-F-E-S. And they homesteaded 160 acres to create this this little town, this little city called Nampa. And they teamed up with this man named James McGee. And uh, McGee and the Duffs in 1886 formed the Nampa Land and Improvement Company. And they plotted out the land for all these people to come and move in. And since, you know, it's a, it's a good hub for railroads, 
you know, people flocked to this place. And the Duffs, they were actually a really religious couple. So they refused to sell land to anybody who was planning on building a saloon or any any sort of business of ill repute. The nickname for Nampa early on was New Jerusalem. Ironically, within two years, though, three of the 28 businesses that developed in Nampa became saloons. And more ironically still, 21 years later, the home where the Duffs lived, that was moved. And in its place, there was a brewery that was built. And the town developed further with the creation of like canals through the area. And it's got a long history of growth and development. On February 6th, 1895, George Hamilton and Edward Smith find themselves in this fairly developed town drinking. And one of them comes up with the idea to rob this shepherd, the sheep herder named George Cluley. And uh, they end up robbing him of $47, which in 1895, I did some inflation counting, $47 mm-hmm. was about $1,400 today. Oof, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, I don't, I, I tried to find out like, what's the average income of a shepherd you know, just even in in 2019, and I could not find anything about it. But but fourteen hundred dollars, like that, was probably his savings. That was probably most of the money that he had collected all this time, so that he could start a family, and do all these things. And these two robbed this guy. But uh, I remember when I went to College of Idaho out in Caldwell, which is just a little bit west of Nampa. I remember there was a point. When the town was shut down as this river of sheep marched through the campus. And it's still one of my favorite yeah. memories. Is the one of the funniest things. So Yeah, we had something similar in the, the little town that I went to school in, because uh, they keep all the sheep up in the mountains in uh in the wintertime and then move them down uh in in fall i think or maybe the other way around but yeah we have like we'd be sitting in class and like look out the window and like there's all (laughs) this all these sheep just running through campus and you're just like huh this is really weird yeah it kind of shuts the whole place down for a short amount of time there so they are arrested that very day and lodged in the county jail in Caldwell. And sometime in the evening of March 17th, so so they commit this robbery in February of 1895. In March, March 17th, 1895, Hamilton Smith and two other jailbirds actually saw their way out of the jail. And they cut the iron braces and straps of their steel cell and make it into the corridor of the jail. And then from there, they actually pried mortar and bricks from the hall and escaped out into the night. And the four took off. They actually went in separate directions. Uh, Hamilton, George, he is recaptured first, but there's no mention of his capture in the newspaper. And his partner, the one who committed the robbery with him, Smith, was recaptured in La Grande, Oregon a couple days later. On April 15th, 1895, George and Edward are found guilty and charged with robbery, and they're sentenced to seven years of hard labor in the Idaho State Penitentiary. They both go in front of the judge. They reiterate their innocence to the charge, but the judge proclaims, these are his words, that in pronouncing this sentence, the benefit of every possible doubt had been given the men. And in Idaho, at this point, the minimum charge for robbery was uh, five years, and a max was life at the Idaho State Penitentiary. So seven years was not that bad. So they are 
Yeah, they're carted on April 23rd, 1895 to the Idaho State Penitentiary where they begin their sentences. And the warden at that time, his name is John Campbell, and he he was warden from 1893 to 1897. So we'll be talking about a different warden here in just a minute. Warden Campbell noted that in George's processing, that George Hamilton was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was raised Presbyterian. He had nine to ten years of education. He was single, and his parents were both deceased. And he wrote that his father had died when he was five years old, and his mother had died at 21 years old. And uh, Campbell also wrote that George had a living brother in Denver, Colorado, named Edward Hamilton. Hmm. He listed his teeth as sound, (laughs) though he had these severe scars from boils on his legs and his butt. The most important part of his intake comes in the form of his working history. And Warden Campbell listed... George as being a draftsman and a telegraph operator in the NPRR for nine years. Now, the obvious conclusion uh, is that he must have worked for the Northern Pacific Railroad, Mm -hmm. but there's a chance that he worked for the Northern Pennsylvania Railroad. And this is something I've I've dug and dug and dug and I have spent countless hours trying to figure out who this man is uh, and what job he is. I've gone through so many railroad staff members looking for everything involved. Uh, I don't, I can't figure out what connection he, he is. If he infected this or did he make all this mm-hmm. up? Anyway, Warden Campbell realizes that George is a great contribution to the prison population here. He's kind of a new commodity that can be uh, used. Mm-hmm. So, He says, uh, you know, he puts George to work to design and oversee the construction of a new prison dining hall. Mm -hmm. And the uh, 1897-1898 Warren's Biennial Report listed 45 men serving time who had previous occupations that could have contributed to the completion of this dining hall. They consisted of one brick maker, three blacksmiths, one boiler maker, four carpenters, three engineers, 30 laborers, one millwright, and two molders. You know what a millwright and a molder are? What was the millwright? Millwright, yeah. And a molder? I'd assume a molder is some... That was, that was the second one you said, molder? Yeah. So I would assume that's someone who would, like, shapes the stone... Yeah, so they 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 make molds to cast metal objects. So mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. they're kind of kind of blacksmith, but they're making objects for blacksmiths to create the object. Yeah, okay. and then millwrights are people millwright. who build. Yeah, they build mills and maintain mill machinery. So I mean, most of these individuals, they they that's just very specific jobs, but they would probably have some idea of any form of construction. So. You know, George, as this draftsman, someone who drafts up designs for buildings, he's got a whole collection of people who can work and and create his vision that becomes the dining hall that that we all know the shell of now. Um, But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, on top of all these specialized individuals, all these people who are making bricks and uh, carpenters and things like that, um, they also have a hundred other men that are on you know in prison at this time just to just to fulfill the physical labor that would be required to to bring all this stone down and stack it up and do all this other stuff 
the uh, free labor meant that the overall cost for the building was $2,241.54, which is roughly about $70,000 now, which is nothing for, for yeah. what they created. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, it's an intense, like not intense, but it's definitely like a thorough building and it's like really well made. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's impressive. Yeah. The fact that it's still standing despite being burned down, like the shell of mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it was just constructed so soundly that uh, yeah. it still stands. That's, that's a testament to like his draftsmanship. It's it's yeah. really really cool. The yeah. uh, eighteen October eighteen ninety eight Idaho Statesman, when it was completed, described it as one of the best and most useful of the buildings constructed at the penitentiary. And at this point in the prison's history, there was actually a sign above the front door at the old pen that said twenty five cent admission, and people could come and spend you know twenty five cents, which you know that's a lot of money in the eighteen nineties. Yeah. Man. That's so interesting. Like basically paying, yeah, basically paying like 40 bucks to go in and just, so it was just to see like the building and see how the inmates were living. Was that the point of it? Just, and just a, another way to capitalize on Americans need to like Americans need a voyeurism to just make a little <laughs> bit extra, of extra money. Is that the dark tourism? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think there, there was an aspect of that, that, People were interested in what's going behind these giant gray, you know, gray walls that what what's going on back there. And people were willing to pay 25 cents. I mean, it's it's kind of similar to the dark tourism industry that we still see today where people are going to these horrible, horrible places with with terrible histories. And they're spending top dollars to be guided through places where, you know, they could be they could be killed walking yeah. through some of the places that they visit. But it's, it's have you just seen that. that show on net? Sorry, this is a sidebar. Have you seen that show on Netflix? I think it's called Dark Tourism or something like yeah. that. Oh my oh, god, that's I love such that an show. interesting show. It oh, is. It's so good. I don't think I have I talked to you about this where we had a uh, graduate student come into the old pen and just interview each of the staff members, just kind of talking about what we do and, and how we contribute it to history and why, why are we a site? And then at, like one of the last questions was like, how do you feel about being a dark tourist destination? And it was the first time in, in the times that I worked there that I realized, oh my gosh, yeah, I yeah. work in the dark tourism industry. And yeah. I don't know how I hadn't thought about it, but because we we humanize these individuals so much yeah. that we aren't just focusing on the horrible stories that we really right. want to know about what brought Idahoans to prison and, right. you know, what what's the real story behind them. But, you know, right. we do have all these executions, all these things. It, it right. just really put me in place for a minute. It kind of bummed me out for a couple of days, yeah. honestly. <laughs> no, that's fair. I mean, I, cause I thought about that too. I remember like when I first started interning quote unquote and like volunteering there, I was always so freaked out by it. But then once I started working there full time, I just remember just like it all of a sudden, like your idea shifts and you just see it so much more of a historical site than you do as a dark yeah. tourism site. Right, and, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the fact that that we every every month have a paranormal group come in, like there is a dark tourism side to it. I think it's definitely lesser than some of the things that he profiles on that show. But yeah, definitely there's two ways to see the site. And I think either way is valid. 
Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Back to George Hamilton and the dining hall. So he actually designed it as as this two-story building with a potential of a third story. And uh, he designed the building with a basement, a ground floor, and this potential layer for a third tier, which is something that is crazy hard to believe now once mm-hmm. you see the building now. But the fact that he was looking ahead for that creation mm-hmm. just like adds to the fact that he was a, a pretty decent designer. Yeah, for sure. 1,230 yards of material were excavated for the basement and plumbing was installed in each compartment down in the basement. There's six different compartments down there. Mm -hmm. The extra excavation around the side created what we call the moat, which allowed daylight into these six separate basement compartments. And Mm -hmm. it provided light for the inmates down there to work all day. And the Mm -hmm. compartments included a cellar, shoe shop, butcher shop, bakery, laundry, and a prisoner's bathroom with an 8-foot by 15-foot plunge bath that allowed inmates to frolic in the water whenever they like, which is one of my favorite lines (laughs) from the newspaper. (laughs) Frolic in the water whenever they like. It just makes it sound like they're just going to the the pool, going to have a fun time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can't go to Soda Springs, so I guess I'll go to the prison plunge bath instead. So Yeah, right. <laughs> it's their real like first real bathing facility in the institution cuz prior to this they had this wooden tub that they would fill up basically once a week and multiple inmates would share the water. Uh, interestingly, also besides this fact about the plunge bath that In January 1909, inmate Harry Orchard, who was an assassin who assassinated uh, Governor of Idaho, Frank Stuneberg, he's also the longest-serving tenant at the Idaho State Penitentiary, he was actually baptized in that plunge bath in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And, you know, they they used this little plunge bath until 1926 when it was finally declared unsanitary and and they installed uh, some new showers in that multi-purpose building, that shirt factory building. So one of my things I have to I just I want to say this though because it's like one of my favorite things that you ever said is you were I think I I don't know if I was following you on a tour just happened to hear your tour but you were talking about this plunge bath and how how new and novel it was and you uh, you were talking about this this wooden barrel that they had to use and you said you know if all these guys are sharing this and they're all dirty and they're dusty like that's gonna be pretty thick water at the end (laughs) and I was just like. Oh, I never thought about it that way, but it's true. And so yeah. like you can see why this like plunge bath, like the water is, it's warm because it's heated with geothermal energy. It's yeah. like fresh, like you don't have to share it with all of these like super, you know, you can get new clean water, um, you know, whenever you need to. And it's like, I imagine as going from a wooden barrel with thick, dirty water to this like <laughs> brand new I suppose maybe I would frolic in it. Like maybe, maybe the newspaper article is not wrong. It would be like kind of like having a little hot tub that you know you're you're bathing in this thing and you're with your buddies. Hopefully you're with with people that are you're in their clique and you're not being forced to be in that tub with them. And yeah, I mean before it was like literally all these guys are working up in the quarry all day and then they're coming down to you know lukewarm water. In a in a horse trough, essentially, is what they were bathing in. So 
this this was amazing and George was seen kind of as a rock star and everybody you know respected this man and it it was incredible um the the basement rooms were 23 feet 6 inches by 24 feet 6 inches with these 8 foot ceilings so right at this time there were only two cell houses there's the territorial prison and there's there's the 1890s cell house and then mm-hmm. finally, there's a dining hall. There wouldn't be, you know, two and three houses, those those cell houses you can go into with the really thick bars. This is for our listeners who have come to the old pen. Mm-hmm. That, that's what that's what they would have had in, in 1890 cell house and in the territorial prison. And they, they didn't have plumbing in there either. So, I mean, imagine the smell and everything else that's going on. They're probably making their meals in the cell houses. There's no plumbing mm-hmm. in there. So you're it's... smelling yesterday's dinner coming out of somebody's honey bucket while you're preparing tonight's dinner. (laughs) I know that's disgusting. (laughs) So (laughs) hopefully no one is eating lunch right now. Oh, gross. Oh boy. Okay. So (laughs) (laughs) the, the dining room, the main floor. So when you come to the old pen and you see there's this big open cavern, there would have been a big wooden floor and right there on the ground floor was their dining hall. And it was it was 49 feet, 8 inches by 50 feet, 4 inches. And there's a single support beam in the center of the hall. And I'll, I'll put up a photo on our Facebook group that kind of shows it in these early days. I think it's from the early 19-teens. But this, this dining hall could feed, you know, it had space for 250 inmates to eat without any crowding. And could seat 300 men without any inconvenience. And it's set up with a narrow, yeah. And of course, at this time, it's also, it's, and and it would be through like the 1960s, almost to the end of the 60s, a silent system. And so it's Mm -hmm. a bunch of really thin wooden tables all facing one direction. Basically, you got to go in, grab a tray. It was all you can eat, but you had to eat everything on your plate. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the menu is consisting of all this fresh food, all this organic stuff that inmates are growing themselves and mm-hmm. uh, they couldn't speak they couldn't make any sudden movements they couldn't stand or move i always ask this when we give like fourth grade tours i'm like what's it like when you're in the dining hall when you guys are eating lunch is it super quiet and they're like no they you know they all get <laughs> really it's always really funny i'm like well now imagine your school in this little room just eating quietly you know 300 people in your room all of that, like, silently, how spooky is that? And they're like, and usually parents are like, there's no way. That would never happen. Yeah. They'd, all be in, <laughs> they'd all be in trouble. There would be a guard in what they called the nest, the bird's nest. And he mm-hmm. was on a raised platform above everybody. And he had a shotgun and a tear gas canister just in case anything, you know, happened. And we'll probably talk about the riots on some episode, just kind of focus on some of the earlier riots and there, mm-hmm. there was one food fight that turned a little bit dangerous, and uh, the, that is one of the earliest times when they had to use one of their tear gas guns. Anyway, the potential for passing contraband and for inmate unrest in the dining hall was great, and a lot of the ta- attacks happened right around mealtime, either in the dining hall or waiting to approach the steps to, that lead up to the dining hall. Mm-hmm. 
this is a set of rules that was issued in 1931, and, and it kind of reflects the earlier ones as well. Let's see. Number one, upon entering the dining hall, prisoners will march in line and proceed directly to their respective places and take their seats quietly. Number two, you will not be allowed to speak while eating, and strict silence shall be observed during the meal. Staring at visitors, talking and laughing, fooling or gazing about the room is strictly forbidden. Number three, wasting food in any form will be punished. At the conclusion of your meal, place a knife, fork, and spoon on the right side of the plate and sit erect. When signal is given to rise, march out of your respective places in line in a prompt, quiet, and orderly manner. Any prisoner carrying off anything from the dining hall will be punished. And number four, in passing to and from the dining room, you must walk erect with your eyes to the front. So it was, it was a very strictly regimented. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's hard to imagine 320 human beings following these rules. You know, I, yeah. yeah. Most of the prison's history, that is the entire prison population. Yeah. You know, and even at its highest, that's half, like that's so many people. It, it really is just, I guess, again, it's kind of one of those things where you say it and you're just like, oh, whatever, because you say it over and over and over and over every time you give the right. tour. But I guess just sitting here and really thinking about the feat that that is like I, you know, I go to class and we can't even have a, a three hour like discussion without like like someone has to talk sitting in silence for like 30 seconds is like <laughs> it drives people crazy. And so it's, it's really interesting. And there's only 30 of us in there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, actually yeah. not even that. Anyway, it's, yeah, just the logistics of that is pretty crazy. I, I just actually left from dinner at a restaurant and uh, there's no way. Like, mm -hmm. how absurd would that be to mm -hmm. eat a meal without being able to communicate with somebody? And that's that's every single day for, you know, five years right. that George Hamilton has, you know, or seven years that he's sentenced he has to expect yeah. that. And, you know, all the other inmates that serve there. Have you ever just like sat, like been on like a, a bad date or like just had something awkward where you are eating and it eating in silence is honestly one of the most <laughs> awkward things. Like even if you like each other, there's some you're eating a little bit. And if it's quiet, like you're just like, man, someone <laughs> has got to say something. This is weird. I wonder why. Psychology is so interesting. But yeah. yeah. I, anyway, this changes in the late 60s they decided to take these really long narrow tables out and put these little square tables and round tables so that the inmates could could actually chat and communicate and they got rid of that rule that everybody had to be silent so kind of kind of updated it a little bit and you know currently they now it's just it just looks like an elementary school and they they don't have the same rules you can't be you know crazy and jumping on the table or anything but you can right. still communicate with your friends and yeah it's a little, little different now. So this, this is kind of an early system. And after every meal, utensils, of course, would be counted. And if anything mm -hmm. went missing, they, all the inmates were locked in their cells and the grounds were shook down. And basically, they were searched until the utensil was found. Mealtimes were relegated to 20 minutes to avoid any loafing and the potential for attacks and for anyone to steal anything. And the rear portion of the ground floor held the kitchen and the guards' dining hall. So if you look next time you're at the old pen, if you look in the back left and back right corners, those were actually two separate rooms, one for the kitchen and one for the, just for the guards to eat in. And those were 25 feet by 25 feet. So 
George, he designs this, he creates this, he oversees the construction, he chooses the sandstone that he wants from the quarry, and if you come to the old pen and you look at the cell houses that are near the dining hall and you compare the stonework that was done on those to what George oversaw, I mean, what he did is immaculate. All the lines mm -hmm. are perfectly straight in the dining hall. Mm -hmm. They are perfectly cut stones. And the other ones, yeah. they're kind of all different shapes and sizes and at different you know, angles and different things. So this is incredible. On February 1st, 1898, George seemed to have maybe gotten a little bit too big for his britches because he's actually locked in the prison dark cell for insolence to the warden. Do you think he said, do you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> do you know Do you know who I built am? this dining hall? I am a rock star around here. Who are you? Oh, you're the warden. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm going to imagine that's what he said because there's no explanation in his file what it was. And he's he's released not long after on February 11th, 1898. So from February 1st, he, he just spent 10, day, 10 days in that dark cell, which was in what we call uh, the new cell house, an 1890s cell house. It was... Is uh, one of the earliest punishment cells. And basically it was just just like the other cells, but with a solid door. So there's no heat or ventilator. There's no light coming in. It's just a dark little room. And we'll, we'll mm -hmm. talk about other guys who were locked in that cell soon. In April, the pardon board met and commuted Hamilton's sentence to one year with a release date set for January 1st, 1899. So that would be about four years that he had spent, just three and a half years. Now, do you think part of this, and you may, I may be jumping ahead here, but do you think part of this early release, this consideration was because of the work that he did on the dining hall? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And so George, he says, January 1st? No, that's not soon enough. He felt that his hand in the construction of the dining hall outshone his minor infractions, that he should be released maybe October 1898. So he actually writes to the Secretary of State, George J. Lewis. So he writes, Honorable George J. Lewis. I'm going to imagine what his voice sounded like. Secretary <laughs> of State, Boise, Idaho. Dear sir, the only excuse I have to offer for bothering you so much in a matter that probably seems trivial to you is my anxiety to gain my release. As I anticipate that the board may probably adjourn for some time, will you kindly bring my case up on the 5th? The Attorney General was up here some few days ago, and the warden very kindly asked that my release be granted. The General said he would do what he could. I cannot express my appreciation for the kindness the board has already shown me. When I am released, I shall use every effort to show the board I am worthy of their kind consideration." I trust you will pardon the liberty I take in writing you. Remain, sir, very respectfully yours, George Hamilton. And two weeks later, actually after he sends this, on October 16th, 1897, George is given a conditional pardon from the Idaho wow. State Penitentiary. Yeah, I feel so. like that letter was like just evidence that it had to he had to have like at some point said like, do you know who I do you know who I am? Like. <laughs> It, it like, he just seems a little uh, full of himself, I feel like, where he's just like, <sighs> I, like, he feels like he has the right to, you know, to write this letter and to get off early. I, I right. think that there's a little bit of an ego involved with this guy, or maybe that's my, my interpretation. Well, I mean, if, if my suspicion 
suspected background of him is correct, it might be rightfully so. Uh, so, yeah. so the conditions of his release is that he leave the state of Idaho. After serving mm -hmm. two years and four months, Warden Charles Van Dorn, so this is a different warden who served from 1897 to 1899, Van Dorn bought George Hamilton's last train ride out of Boise. On his way to Oregon, because they bought him on a one-way ticket to Oregon, right. George exited the train at Napa and checked into a hotel. He objected to the condition of his pardon, and he couldn't resist his addiction to alcohol. He reportedly told a guard on his way out that if he found the liquor habit had still control of him, he would conquer it by taking morphine and ending his career. Oof. He followed through with this promise. He got to Nampa. He bought a bottle of liquor. And feeling the pressure of not wanting to leave Idaho and returning to his old vice, he became determined to end his life before committing any more crimes. He bought morphine and overdosed. And the Idaho statesman wrote on October 18, 1898, this is the headline, took his own life. George Hamilton commits suicide at Nampa, just out of pen. Seems to have been despondent over his inconquerable appetite for liquor. George Hamilton, who was pardoned from the penitentiary on Saturday last, committed suicide at Nampa on Sunday night, taking morphine. It seems he took the drug sometime during the Sunday night, being found dead in his room yesterday morning. It is said that Hamilton left a letter for Warden Van Dorn of the penitentiary in which he said that he had been ordered to leave the state but did not propose to do so. Mr. Van Dorn was summoned by telephone and went to Nampa. From all that can be learned, it seems that Hamilton greatly objected to the condition of his pardon under which he was obliged to leave the state. Further, it appears that when he got to Nampa, he indulged in some extent in drink. The supposition is that he was mortified both over having yielded to the temptation to take liquor and over the order for him to depart from Idaho, and that in the state of mind thus induced, he determined to take his life. Hamilton frequently admitted that he was not able to resist the temptation of liquor, which got him into all his troubles, and he was reported to have told one of the guards that if he found the liquor habit still had control of him, he would conquer it by taking morphine and ending his career. This man was far above the average of convicts. He had been well-educated, was a good draftsman and engineer, and performed very valuable services for the state in the construction of the new building in the penitentiary enclosure. Hamilton was not his real name. It is understood that he came from Pittsburgh, where his family is prominent. And the Ketchum, Ketchum Keystone ran a story on October 22, 1898, that ended up on the front page of the Salt Lake City Herald, and it says, George Hamilton today committed suicide at Nampa by taking morphine. Hamilton was yesterday released from the penitentiary, being pardoned by the board. He was a very bright young man, having had a college education. Wine and women worked his downfall. And assuming the name of Hamilton, he became an outcast. He held up a man while he was intoxicated and was sent to the penitentiary. His real name was said to be Richardson. He was a relative of the Druze, the actors, and his parents, who are well-off, live in the East. They have believed for years that their son was dead. And we have yet to find an obituary or any other information about Ham Hamilton's life and family, and there's no mention as to where he was buried after his death. The dining hall basically stands as a testament to his skill and his you know, apparent education and draftsmanship, but we really don't know 
more than that. Mm-hmm. The the Drews that they mention, if any of our listeners know of an actress named Drew Barrymore, that's her family. And their family extends, you know, back from Dublin when this guy named John Rulin came from Dublin in 1827 to the United States and shortened his name to uh, John Drew. And he opened up and managed the Arch Street Theater, which was later demolished in 36. So it's not around anymore. But he had two children who also became famous actors, John Jr. and Georgiana. Uh, Sadly, John Sr. died at the age of 34 while hosting a party for his daughter in which he tripped and fell and fatally hit his head. But his children became very prominent. John Jr. and Georgiana were you know, famous through the 1880s and 1900s. And if George Hamilton was close to the family, he probably would have known, you know, John Jr. and Georgiana. Mm. And uh, Georgiana would later have three children, including the famed great aunt of Drew Barrymore named Ethel Barrymore. Well, I was going to say, that's the second, that's, I was going to say, you're probably just about about to say it, but that's the second Barrymore connection at the penitentiary. Yeah. Yeah. So she married a man named Herbert Blythe, but uh, he changed his name to Maurice Barrymore, and then he married Ethel, and she changed her name. Drew Barrymore's middle name is Blythe, Drew Blythe Barrymore. Ethel would visit the Idaho State Penitentiary to meet famed Idaho assassin Harry Orchard, who I mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. was uh, baptized in the prison dining hall. So it all comes back. We should probably do an episode on Harry Orchard this season, Sky. It'll be a 10-parter because he has yeah, such no a kidding. crazy life. I've seriously spent so many hours of my life trying to f- track this man down, and I cannot figure it out. I've dug through mm-hmm. uh, railroad documents for hours and hours. I've dug through newspapers, but without a real last name. I mean, is it Richardson? Mm-hmm. I've looked. I've looked and looked and looked. And I cannot find it. So, Drew Barrymore, if you are listening and you know this connect, no, I'm just kidding. As if Drew Barrymore would ever listen to this oh, podcast. Honestly, but... Drew Barrymore, if you are listening, <laughs> you should come to the old pen and let's recreate that. And I want to meet you so bad. That'd be so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Drew Barrymore, please let us up if you are listening to this podcast history. and you have, yeah, <laughs> uh, as if, yeah, George Hamilton. Is such a such an interesting alias. I don't. I mean, yeah. There's definitely this guy is multifaceted. Uh, clearly very educated. Clearly very smart, um, and created a, a basically a living document for us at the old penitentiary every day. Uh, yeah. I that's always that's the trickiest. I don't know about you, but that's always the trickiest building for me with the little fourth graders because. You're trying to explain to them why it's important and why it's so different. And, and this uh-huh. guy did this really cool thing. And then you have to sort of tread lightly around these little 10-year-olds who, like, may or may not know what suicide is. And oh, and you yeah. don't want to talk about them killing themselves, him killing them himself. And um, I remember and the, my way around it was I would just say that, you know, he... He ended up, um, you know, taking too much of, of a drug and dying. And that's sort of my way, like, sort of around that. And there's a sign right outside um, for, for those who go on the self-guided tours. You know, we have the signs that explain stuff about the building. And on this sign, it says that, you know, George Hamilton built this building. And when he was released, he committed suicide. And yeah. so, you know, I was talking to these little fourth graders and and I said, you know, and, and he died. and 
uh, was kind of done. And so I was asking for questions and this, this little fourth grader raises her hand and she says, yeah, I'm just wondering, um, did he win the fight? I, I said, oh, um, what, what fight? And she says, well, like the, like the fight that, that brought him in here. And, and his, um, his mom or her mom tried to be like, oh, I think she just doesn't know what, like, uh, she sort of like, we couldn't tell what she was trying to say. And she finally said like, well, right here. And she points the sign. It says that he committed suicide. And so since we use the word commit for crime, she thought suicide. And I don't know if she was relating that maybe to like suicide squad or something like that, that, you know, it had just had a different meaning to her. Um, and so she, she was saying like, did he, you know, did he win the fight that, that he committed that brought him in here? And I had to be like, oh no, I have to tell you what this really means. And, and she just was like, oh, like, (laughs) I was like, I'm sorry. I just broke your innocence. Right. You know, like it's definitely a, a tough, tough thing to talk about with these little fourth graders, but it is a really important building and, you know, really crucial, not just when, you know, George built it, but throughout the rest of the prison's history. Right. Yeah. Like it was used for so many different purposes, like as a meeting place, uh, as a place to brew squawky down in the basement rooms (laughs) as, you know, just a gathering ground. And they had meetings downstairs, like those compartment rooms as they built other buildings, like they would use those different compartments for all kinds of different purposes for the first native American club, uh, for their first early church before, you know, the 1940s when the, the territorial prisons turned into the chapel. And, you know, unfortunately in March 7, 1973, it's, it's burned to the ground. Like mm-hmm. what we have left of it is, is just the shell. Oh, and, and just like speaking about George Hamilton, I always, for the fourth graders, I relate that I just talk about drug addiction and that, you know, mm-hmm. the United States, we we in, incarcerate so many people for what has been deemed an illness, for, for addiction, for things that people can't control. And unfortunately, because they can't control it, they have to break laws in order to, to feed their addictions. And that's mm-hmm. what you know, we fill our prisons with that. In the old pen, I mean, that's 1898. This guy was, was an alcoholic and he could not keep it at, out of his system and he couldn't help himself. And when he drank, he didn't think correctly. And, you know, that's part of the fun when, when you're doing it responsibly. <laughs> but when you get out of control, like, like George was, it's easy to let's rob this shepherd of his life savings of his $47. Mm-hmm. And, you know, look, let's... Look what happens to his life. And so I, I always bring that up to kids that like, you know, someday you're going to be tempted by drugs and alcohol and that's, it's going to be your choice entirely. And I just want this to be a story of somebody who was really well educated. Like you don't have to be someone who doesn't have, who's in poverty. You can be somebody who's really well educated and you can be well connected, but you have this addiction and it causes you to end up in prison. So mm-hmm. that's that's how I always relate it to fourth graders that it doesn't matter like if just be responsible and and think through all of your actions and I feel like every every person is affected by it either themselves yeah. or with somebody in their family and for sure it's just a it's a human problem and it's always been and George is just a great example of that 
Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, well, I'll get off my soapbox here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the fun of having a, a public platform, right? Is that we get to get on soapboxes every once in a while, even when no one wants to hear it. No, I no, I think that's definitely a good lesson, especially to teach to these young kids, these young impressionable kids, and no, so that's a that's an excellent way to approach it, and and uh, excellent job with uh, our our favorite George uh, Hamilton yeah. uh, as usual. Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, and discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there. If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov slash donation.aspx. Be sure to click the Behind Gray Walls podcast tab on the left side of the page. Any donation amount is appreciated and will go toward improving the quality of this podcast, enabling us to bring you the stories that we love and that we hope you love too. Thanks, guy. Well, what, yeah. what are you want to talk about? What are you? Oh boy, I got a I got a doozy <laughs> today. Um, I yeah, I am doing um, Margaret Hardy. <gasps> so yes, kind of spooky. Um, it's I guess it's not spooky as actually just truly terrifying. Yeah, it's uh, it's so hard. So I will preface this part of the episode by saying this this crime is against a child it's there's not a i don't get into details but you know uh it's pretty gnarly what happens and so if crimes against children are upsetting to you i may recommend maybe skipping this one having someone vet it for you because do know that this uh it's uh it's it's tough so um it's terrible my sources, before I get started, uh, there are sources in her inmate file. I couldn't find the digital copy that I must have had at some point. I was able to an- uh, access some of it through Ancestry, and then some of it I must have gotten while I was doing the, the biography that I had written, which I had written um, uh, quite a while ago. Um, there's a plethora of Idaho Daily Statesman articles, a plethora of uh, Chronicling America, which is actually really difficult to get, but there were... Uh, there was a page and a half of Margaret Hardy results, basically, when I searched it in Chronicling America. So um, that gives you an idea of the scope of this crime. Sort of Ancestry.com, that's a little iffy. Uh, there are a few things I got um, from that, and I'll talk a little bit about those. Um, I got some information from the official City of Moscow website, and then one from a PDF called 132 Things You Probably Didn't Know About State Hospital South from the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare, and that kind of gives you an idea uh, of where we're headed with this one. I've never come across that. That sounds very fascinating. You're oh, I've used it a ton. That. It's super interesting. If you just search State Hospital South, it's like the third or fourth thing that pops up, and they're really, really interesting. And I'll talk a little bit about them, uh, some of those facts, not all 132, but like three. Um, okay. okay. Well, we'll <laughs> do our own personal conversation <laughs> yeah. where you read off all 132. Right, that so <laughs> all cool. 32. No, it's, it's a really interesting uh, document. All right, so, you know, Margaret Hardy, she is number 422. So she is one of our earliest inmates. She is our second female inmate. And so we, again, do not have a picture for her. 
And just like has been the case with the earlier women that I have done so far, there just is not a lot on her, um, especially with a name like Margaret Hardy. That's a probably a pretty common name back in the 1890s. I think it may even be today. So searching Margaret Hardy on Ancestry when you hardly know anything about her as it is, uh, is, is sometimes a little fruitless. So we have her listed as Margaret E. Hardy, whether that actually was her name or not. We aren't totally sure, not even sure what the E in uh, Margaret E. Hardy stands for. But she was born probably between 1845 and 1847 in either Osage Beach, Missouri, and this is according to a uh, record that we have at the Old Pen, or according to her intake form in Utah. Um, those are two different places. <laughs> um, and there's kind of evidence to support both of these ideas, and I'll get into that, or both of these places, I should say. Ancestry lists a lot of Margaret Hardy's in the Midwest, um, which obviously is not any sort of solid evidence, but it might lend credence to the fact that they're she may have been born in Missouri. Also, it's it's hard because we don't know her maiden name. So was she married while she lived in the Midwest? Was she married after? I, it's also complicated. I don't know. Yeah. So what we do know is that her father died when she was seven years old. And then her mother died five years later when she was 12, um, at which time she left her parents' home as an orphan. After this, she might have been adopted. We can maybe say that's probably true because, according to her intake form, she had an adopted brother. Um, his name is listed as J-U-N, so it's probably like Junior. So Junior Simpson, and he lived in Colfax, Washington at the time of her arrest. Um, I tried to then look up Margaret Simpson in Washington, uh, and that's that got me even uh, further from the truth, I think. Huh. So I, you know, I really, I don't know, you know, what, again, because then did she, is would Simpson be considered her maiden name? Would that be an adopted name? Or was it, um, you know, if it was a brother, was it his, his family that adopted her? Or um, did she join a family that then adopted him at the same time you know what i mean yeah that sounds very complex yeah so it's kind of one of those things where you have to take them at uh at their word and just be like i don't know this is what it says so she had an adopted brother named junior simpson and he lived in colfax washington so so according to her intake form she was raised in the lds church which could lend credence to the fact that she might have been born in utah but um there is a a somewhat of a mormon outpost in missouri um that you know, the the Mormons had a, kind of an outpost there in, in independence. So there could could that could be from from there from Missouri as well. But on her arrest, uh, she she stated she was part of the Episcopalian Church and was no longer part of the LDS Church. She had no formal education. She was illiterate and she attended school, quote, never years, which I think is one of my favorite huh. things. <laughs> Um, <laughs> never years. So, uh, so Margaret, uh, was not a saint to be sure, probably spurred on the fact that she may have been on her own since she was quite young. This is from an Idaho Daily Statesman article from October 9th, 1895, quote, crime of every description has been familiar to her since she was a young woman. She launched out as a keeper of a body house in St. Louis. She developed into a notorious thief. Her evil propensities were given full sway in Aspen, Colorado, where she kept a lodging house, unquote. 
So there are a few things to take away from these few sentences. So if she was in charge of a body house in St. Louis, that lends, I think, more credence to the fact that she was probably born in Missouri rather than Utah, as she claimed. And I was trying to think about, well, then why are you claiming that you're from Utah? She may have claimed this because she was trying to distance herself from this past, if this past was true. You know, yeah. uh, I'm actually reading a fascinating book about polygamy in Utah right now, and so it, it looks a lot into Utah and the Mormon ideas that surround it. And this author says that Utah in in the 1800s was, was well known, uh, was basically synonymous with Mormons, and even to this day still is. And so, you know, Margaret may have been trying to take advantage of that fact and say, well, I was raised LDS, I was born in Utah, this stuff that you're hearing is not true. So that could be why she said she was born in Utah, but she might have actually been born in Missouri. What's the book that you're reading? It's, oh, it's, oh, it's amazing. I'm obsessed with it. It's called A House Full of Females by Laurel Thatchell Ulrich. Ooh. And um, basically, it is about um, the fact that, that these Mormon women were defending polygamy and you know, the question is, why are they doing that? This is a system that even people back then considered that incredibly oppressive to these women. And right. um, Laurel Thatchell Ulrich ultimately argues that this was basically an extension of women's political power in Utah. Oh, it's so oh, good. Right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm, obsessed with it. I'm gonna pick it up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's really good. Um, okay, so anyway, Another thing that we learn from this sentence in the newspaper is given that she was orphaned at such a young age, it is not impossible that she would have resorted to sex work to try to survive. And if she began at a young age, it's quite likely that she could have been the head of her own prostitution house. And that's what a body house is, you know, at a fairly young age. There's this great show on on uh, Hulu that I got Haley to watch and it's called Harlots and I'm obsessed with it. But it basically is sort of this idea that if you get started in sex work early, you know, this was a way for these women to survive and being in charge of your own house was not only a way to survive, but a way to make extra money. And so, you know, that, and this, this is going to come into play here in, in a couple minutes, like kind of honestly, as I did research, I'd be like, Oh, that thing is really confusing, but maybe this could be the reason for it. And then it would then, that evidence would then be strengthened with like another thing that I found. So it'll all make sense here in a sec. And then the last thing that we learned from that newspaper is that she moved west to Colorado, um, which then is it's not too far of a stretch from Colorado into Idaho. So um, we sort of there are no specific dates on, you know, those crimes of of being the leader of a body house and being a thief and moving to Colorado. But um, we do catch her whereabouts in 1893. There are two things we know about her whereabouts in 1893. The first is that she is married. And the second is that she owns land in Moscow, Idaho. So the Idaho State Historical Society has attempted to reconstruct the 1890 state census because, as we have talked about before, um, the, the national census was destroyed in a large fire in the 1920s. And so they have started to go through and find documents basically between 1890 and 1900 and sort of trying to reconstruct where citizens were, you know, the documents that these their names were on. Um, that is on the um, Idaho State Historical Society website. So if you're interested in that, please go check that out. It's actually just basically a, a Google Doc that they have uploaded and filled out. And, and it's it was useful in this case. And so through this reconstructed census, they found a document listing Margaret M. Hardy on a deed 
to land and property in Moscow in 1893. Um, now this is huge because there is no other Hardy listed on this 1893 deed from Moscow, meaning her husband was not listed on this deed and she owned the property herself. So this goes back to the fact that if she had basically been in charge of her own prostitution house, her own, you know, she would have had money to spare to buy land, which I think is incredible. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be like, yeah, go Margaret Hardy, but that's, I feel like practically unheard of uh, in 1893. And um, even though she's listed as Margaret M. Hardy, I think the fact that it's 1893 in Moscow where we know this crime happened, I am, I would say, uh, I, I would bet a decent amount of money that this is going to be her because this is, it's only two years before her crime is committed and in the same exact place. So that's, that's really fascinating. Uh, That was an exciting find. And then we also know that she is married by this time because numerous newspaper articles list her as Mrs. Margaret Hardy, and she lists herself as married upon her intake form. Uh, We don't know anything else about this marriage. We don't know who her husband was, how long they had been married, if they had any kids of their own. It's just one of those things that since we don't know her maiden name um, and Margaret Hardy is such a common name that it just couldn't be traced. Um, So that's a little bit disappointing, but they wouldn't list her in the paper as Mrs. Margaret Hardy, and she wouldn't have been able to adopt a child, which will come into play here in just a minute, I think, if she wasn't married. So let's let's take a pause here before we get into the horrifying details of this, and let's talk a little oh. bit about Moscow, because we have not talked about Moscow yet. Yeah. So Moscow, Idaho is in uh, the northern panhandle. It's about 200 miles from the Canadian border, and it is right up against the Washington border. Its sister city is Pullman, Washington, uh, which is the home to Washington State, which actually I almost went to uh, for graduate school, um, but instead I'm here in Texas. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who went there. Uh, yeah, so it's it's I've I was I went to visit visit Moscow when I was I believe 12 years old. I was there for a soccer camp, and to stay on a college campus when you're 12, everything is like larger than life, and oh, that's so cool. And I remember it being nice, um, but uh-huh. that was several several years ago, so my memory is quite uh, blurred since then. So um, Moscow itself, you know, the land was occupied by um, Palouse, Nez Perce, and Coeur d'Alene Native Americans before any settlers. And then settlers were drawn to the area around the 1860s and 1870s, especially for timber in the area. The area was originally known as Hog Heaven because there were plants that grew naturally on the land that pigs liked to eat. And then it was changed to either Palouse Valley or Paradise Valley. Interestingly, the Moscow website says both. There aren't dates attached to either of those names, so I don't know if it was known as both at one point or if through the the years it's been kind of convoluted as to which one it was known by. So Palouse Valley or Paradise Valley. And then around 1877, a post office was set up in the area by a man named Samuel Neff. And he called the area Moscow because it reminded him of his hometown of Moscow, Pennsylvania. Oh. Yeah, so I think we all assume it's, yeah, I think we always assume that it's um, Moscow, Russia. Because there, yeah, there is another source that claimed that that, um, it was named by a Russian, and he named it Moscow after Moscow, Russia. But I think uh, the the story about Moscow, Pennsylvania is the one that's listed on the official Moscow website. Um, So I'm going to take that one, I think, um, as to be the more official one. 
Mm-hmm. And you'll notice that we do say it a little bit differently. We say it Moscow instead of Moscow. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that's just an Idaho thing. If it was meant to be said differently, I'm not really sure. So yeah, it's actually named after a place in Pennsylvania, um, which actually is near Scranton, Pennsylvania, you know, famed home <laughs> of the office. Um, <laughs> the theme song is just running through my head right now. Sorry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So Moscow, Idaho grew with the arrival of the railroad, and then it was incorporated as a city in 1887. Two years later, as I've sort of talked about before, Moscow was granted the state's land-grant institution, the University of Idaho. And I have said before that it could have, the Boise could have been the home of the university, but they chose to have the penitentiary instead. So the University of Idaho, home of the Vandals, is is there. And so, like I said, it, it makes sense that their sister city is Pullman, which has Washington State. They're, they're just right across the border from one another. Um, so since then, Moscow has been mo- known mostly for the university, um, but it actually has grown to be one of the best small-town art communities in the country. I think it was listed in, like, the top three of, like, art communities with um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and uh, somewhere in North Carolina that all of a sudden I can't remember. But anyway, so it's just, like, it's just a little small-town community. They host the Lionel Hampton International Jazz Festival every year, as yeah. well as a number of local other art festivals. So it, uh, it's kind of a, an artsy, um, fun little place up there. Uh, the town itself is only about seven square miles, and so it's still a small town and was an especially small town in 1895 when Margaret Hardy was living there. So um, now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty details of her crime. So if you don't want to hear about uh, some horrific crimes against a young girl, please fast forward a couple minutes um, and hopefully you won't have to hear this. So... At some point, um, Margaret and her husband adopted a young African-American girl named Henrietta. Uh, We don't know exactly the year or the circumstances behind this adoption, but this, to me, again, is another piece of evidence as to the fact that Margaret would have been married, uh, because I don't think they would have given uh, a young girl over to uh, just a a single woman. There was one newspaper that falsely reported that uh, Margaret herself was black, But I think this was just simply incorrect reporting. I think they assumed because the young girl was black that that Margaret herself was black. But since it was only reported in one newspaper, and honestly, the fact that this case got covered so widely, I think goes much more to the fact that she is a white woman committing this crime on a a black girl. I've never heard of that, of of any speculation Mm -hmm. that she wasn't white. So that's, that's interesting. That they would have yeah, to and it, point that out in an article like, oh. Well, but that's the thing is it only did it in this one article and it never pointed out her color after that. And so I think, or not even after that, in any other, in any other newspaper. And if she were, if she were African-American, I think they would have really made that point that right, she was yeah. African-American. Yeah. Um, and so I think the fact that, that her, the, her skin color, her skin tone is not mentioned in in any other article besides this one, I think it just was was bad reporting. But they absolutely mentioned the child's. Uh, yes. Oh, every article says that she was quote colored. That was yeah. you know the term for it. So the news breaks on February thirteenth, eighteen ninety five, that Mrs. Margaret Hardy has been arrested for the murder of the three year old child that she had adopted. Now, Margaret claimed that three days before her arrest, the young girl had gotten into a stash of morphine that Margaret kept in the house, and she basically had overdosed. 
And here's a, a side note that if there is a stash of morphine in the house, then it is likely that Margaret was using it for herself, i.e. she was addicted to morphine. And in fact, there is another newspaper article that called her a dope fiend. Um, so I think it is, is quite likely that she was addicted to, to morphine. Back at this time, like, it's kind of like now, like, there are so many people who are addicted to mm -hmm. drugs, you know, given to them by their doctor. And it's, right. it's okay because a doctor gave yeah. it to me, but a lot right. more, you know, over the counter, what we called over the counter medicines were full of like cocaine and morphine and stuff like that in the 1890s. Like, yeah, the fact that, yeah. But it, she probably but also was problematic the, how she used it. And... Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I think morphine, though, like these these drugs were actually just a lot easier to get over the counter. Yeah. Um, I think there was like a there's like a cough medicine from the early 20th century that had like morphine, cocaine and like heroin or something in it that was just over the counter. You could just buy it for your cough. It was like a cough suppressant. <laughs> of course, you're going to feel good. <laughs> <laughs> you are going to feel real good Whoa. with the mixture of all that stuff. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, so so pretty certain that Margaret is addicted to morphine. So then later, she makes another claim that she had made, quote, a, a quote, wash with morphine. So I don't, I don't exactly know what that means, but basically just created a little solution of, of morphine and water, I'm assuming, and then left the room briefly, at which time Henrietta got into it drank some of the solution, and overdosed. Oh. Now, the police, however, very much doubted Margaret's story, because though it seems clear that, that there was morphine in this girl's system, Henrietta's face, particularly her eyes, had been eaten away by carbolic acid. Oh. According to the Kootenay Herald on February 23rd, 1895, Quote, it was claimed, however, that the horrible burns on the child's face produced by carbolic acid could not have been caused by the child herself. Although the face appears to have been smeared with the acid, no trace of it was found on the child's hands. Oh. Uh, so the theory, I think the prevailing theory, is that Margaret tried to overdose this girl with morphine, and when it didn't work, got frustrated and dumped carbolic acid onto her face, Ugh. which is horrible. That's it's so bad, yeah. I can't even stand it. Oh my gosh. I, like, just the thought of it. Carbolic acid may have been, uh, like, the original rubbing alcohol, maybe? Yeah, something dead. That if you dilute it yeah. enough, that you can, yeah, you can clean wounds out and stuff, but, uh, and maybe it was one of those things that didn't come pre-diluted, pre where you had to mix it yourself. Thank yeah. you for regulations right now. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So um, that is, um, I think, originally she's just arrested under the morphine charge. And then she, uh, you know, they, they take a look. The coroner takes a look and says, uh -huh, um, yeah, it's not just morphine that's uh, what's going on here. So the Idaho Daily Statesman actually stated that this was Latah County's first murder case. Because wow. this is 1895. The state is five years old at this point. And, uh, and so this is the first big thing that's really happened. When she was arrested and put into jail, Margaret had a large amount of morphine in her possession, again, likely um, attributing to this idea that she was addicted to yeah, morphine. Yeah. Yeah. So only two days after her arrest and this grand jury said second degree murder, they, they charged her with second degree murder. 
And according to an Idaho Daily Statesman article, the jury would have indicted her for first-degree murder, quote, had it not been for her sex. So very clearly, they're coming out and saying, this is a first-degree murder, but since she's a woman, we're only going to give her second-degree. Which we will see again and again. Uh, which yeah. seems ridiculous, yeah. Oh, for sure. But this is... Um, you know, the thing that I think is most frustrating is that none of these newspaper articles get into her motive for it. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? I, I don't know if, if maybe the child just got on her nerves. I don't know if she was... Um, Intoxicated? Drugged. Yeah. Yeah. Under the influence um, at the time. And then she, I think, as it will become clear, she has mental illness for sure. So a month after her indictment, Judge Piper sentenced Margaret to life imprisonment, and she was held in Latah County Jail while awaiting removal to the Idaho State Penitentiary. While being kept in the county jail, Margaret starts to exhibit some strange symptoms, either out of an attempt to appear insane or actual mental illness. Quote, she cries and laughs alternately and talks silly. She refuses to take exercise, claiming she cannot walk. And this actually, I think, may have happened after she gets to the penitentiary, but it happens, uh, I think, the the first... Uh, there, that's the thing, is one newspaper said it happened after she got to the Idaho State Penitentiary, but another said it happened while she was being held in county jail. But at one point, she calls her a physician, um, complaining of severe abdominal pains. She It's because this, this other inmate says, oh yeah, it's because she swallowed glass. And so I don't know. The thing that I can't figure out is where did she get this broken glass? I don't know if like a window paint, if she broke a window pane or something. But basically, she got her hands on pieces of glass and like made a, rolled it into like a bread ball. Like, you know how with yeah. white bread, you can like mold it into a ball and then just oh, like yeah. swallowed it. And so she swallowed glass um, and, and understandably, I think had some abdominal pains, but nothing really ever came of that complaint. There was another story, and uh, the newspaper says, like, look at this funny story that we're going to tell about this woman who is doing crazy things to herself. So, and again, this goes to her morphine addiction. So, basically, she is complaining of pain, and she demands morphine for this pain. I don't know if it was for the same abdominal pain from swallowing glass, if it was from something else. And so, the doctor gives her some powders, and she, which she, quote, gulped down all at once, just swallowed them. And the, you know, the guard goes to the doctor and says, like, oh, she swallowed him whole. And the doctor laughs and he states that it wasn't morphine, but a, quote, harmless substance. Um, so he basically just gave her a placebo just to mess with her, which is not not cool. She may have been going through morphine withdrawals. Um, yeah. And that's going to that's going to cause some problems. They didn't have the resources to provide her something to fulfill that that addiction. I think both of our inmates are drug and alcohol addicts and yeah. their time in prison were responses like, oh man. This insanity overtakes what she may have been going through. Um, yeah. Just because she, you know, she's acting crazy for a reason. She's not just, I mean, she may just be faking it, but I think that there genuinely is some, something that's going on. And I think a lot of yeah. it would revolve around her, her morphine withdrawals. Yeah, if she's showing up at a jail cell with morphine like in her pockets, like mm -hmm. she is a severe drug addict. Yeah, and when she's incarcerated, and they take that from her. Like, oh yeah. man, she's gonna go through some craziness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, 
Yeah. So after this swallowing glass, after this, you know, this morphine withdrawal, this this placebo effect, she is finally transferred to the Idaho State Penitentiary on March 21st, 1895. Um, one newspaper article mistakenly stated that she was the first female inmate at the penitentiary, but as we know, uh, Hennaby gets that distinction. She was the first white woman at the pen, which uh, may uh, explain why they say that she's the first one. Um, you know, she's the first white woman. So, but this is 1895, and so she is going to be kept in 1890 cell house uh, in that yeah. separate facility. And this this is like two weeks before George Hamilton arrives, too. Just mm-hmm. just so he he would have experienced like all these things too. Yeah, it's crazy. I I did not even put that together while you were saying. I so I didn't either. I until you just said that. I was like, wait, March 1895. Yeah, yeah he came on April 15th. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so there, these guys, we, uh, unintentionally, uh, you know, had these two guys in at the same time. So when she comes in, this is what her, her intake paper says, uh, you know, murder in the second degree. She apparently pleaded guilty. She comes in on March 21st from Latak County. She is 48 years old. I have her nativity listed as Missouri, but the intake form says she was born in Utah. Her occupation was a housewife. She was 5'6", 180, which is actually, Anthony, this may only be useful for you, but that's basically uh, my frame, but just like a little bit heavier. So she basically looked like me. Um, She had a light complexion, which is another reason we know she was not African-American is um, she has a light complexion. Her hair is brown slash gray and her eye color is gray. Now, once once Margaret Hardy is in the penitentiary, she is nothing but trouble, to quote a song from Stevie Nicks. <laughs> so, so at first, authorities think that Margaret is faking insanity, um, but they actually quickly declare that she is actually insane. So here are some newspaper reports of what she's doing. She ha- is howling like a wolf for days on end. She attempted multiple suicide attempts. Um, she quickly drove other inmates and guards crazy. And so while she's doing all this, making all this noise, yelling at the top of her lungs, howling, swallowing glass, um, because of this, she is moved to what is called the bug house. And what that is, is the original form of solitary confinement was the dungeon, um, which some of you may have seen. If you come to a behind the scenes, we actually can go down into it. It's just a little, it's not even really, it's just a cellar almost. And they had four by four by four cells down in these cellars, in this cellar. And um, that's the original form. And eventually that understandably was called uh, too inhumane, uh, which is true. And so correct me if I'm wrong, Anthony, um, but they took some of those cells and they just basically covered them in wood and stuck them out into the, the area where the Rose Garden is and called that the bug house, right? Yeah, from all my research, that's that's exactly right, yeah. Was it like a, was it like two cells, like two cells together that were covered in wood or were each one of them separately covered in wood? Does that, do you understand the question? Yeah, I do. I think they were side by side. Yeah. Because I I think I know where you're going with this next. Yeah. So um, while she's in the bug house, she somehow sets fire to her bed. Again, another sort of another suicide attempt because she nearly kills herself and at least one other inmate. And so in the fact that she almost killed another inmate makes me think that they may have taken two or three of these cells and sort of blocked them together and covered them in wood rather than, uh, you know, each individual cell being covered in wood. 
And and it's just, can you imagine being this other inmate who's been put in this bug house and this, I mean, you're probably put in there because you're, you know, you're misbehaving and maybe a little bit crazy yourself. Because the reason that this becomes called the bug house is because people literally go like buggy and it go crazy in it. And so can you imagine just being this other inmate being like, um, excuse me, this woman is setting fire to hello, this is wood, this is all about to go up in flames, I need you to come get me. Like, oh, that'd be so scary. And this woman clearly does not care. She is trying everything she can to die, basically. Um, And and this is... Do you know when she does this? um, So it would have been, honestly, I'm not totally sure. It would have had to have been, I would guess, between April and September. Um, There... I don't think there was an official date. I think the information I got this from was from October 9th when she's moved out. Um, So basically they just said they moved her out on this date. This is what she's been doing. I don't think there was an actual date to that particular instance. They, you know, they tried to say that she's faking this, but I, I just wonder, it went on for so long and, you know, you're literally, it's not like you're like sort of, faking suicide attempts. You are literally setting fire to your bed. There's no way that theoretically you think you're going to get out of this alive, you know? And so I do wonder that surely, especially the early months would have been, I think, fueled by morphine withdrawals. But I do wonder if that just, if she truly had some sort of mental illness and, and was affected by it. Because after she sets fire to her bed in the bug house, you know, the doctors and the warden and the officials come together and say, like, I think she's actually crazy. We cannot have her here anymore. And she is sent to the Insane Asylum, now known as the State Hospital South in Blackfoot, Idaho, on October 9th, 1895. So that is listed as her official release date from the prison is October 9th, 1895. So she was only kept in prison for six months and 18 days, but then she was sent to the the asylum where she was again known as an inmate. Here's a little bit of a history of the insane asylum slash State Hospital South and this is where that 132 things you didn't know about State Hospital South comes in. The Idaho Territory set aside $20,000 for the building of a territorial insane asylum at Blackfoot in 1883 and then it opened in July 1886 for 26 men and 10 women. Again they were also called inmates. Um, which gives you kind of an idea of what the original insane asylum was meant to do. They're not patients, they're inmates. The territory purchased land around the hospital to cultivate and to make the hospital a little bit more self-sufficient. In the late 1890s, the hospital produced so much that it actually supplied food to the territorial prison. Did you know that? I didn't, know. I learned that. That's awesome. Yeah. Nice work, guy. I know, that's kind of fun. And so this gives you, like, there, I think it was, like, not just did they purchase land, I think they purchased, like, 145 acres around the the hospital, yeah. I almost wanted to say prison, which is, you can do a lot. And so between 1895 and 1896, this is what they, this is a list on this uh, 132 things of, in this year, this is how much they produce. They produce 60,000 pounds of beets, 4,144 pounds of butter. 40,000 pounds of carrots, 400 dozen eggs, 125 tons of hay, 134, 737 pounds of milk, 
300 bushels of potatoes, and 876 bushels of wheat. Jeez. So they're not only self-sufficient, they are providing food for other territorial sites, you know, including the prison. Yeah, that's a well-producing farm. Yeah, that's amazing. For sure. So in 1895, the hospital would have around 500 inmates. That includes Margaret herself. Straight jackets were used at the hospital until 1909, and I would bet that Margaret was one of the people who would have had to use those. Eventually, and I couldn't find an exact date on this list, but eventually the hospital becomes known as the State Hospital South rather than the Idaho State um, Insane Asylum. But the hospital is still open today. As of 2016, the hospital in its history had admitted nearly 29,000 patients. Wow. Um, So it's a long-dated history for um, the State Hospital South, but what was called the Idaho State Insane Asylum um, when she was sent So Margaret remained at the insane asylum for a year before a letter shows up in her file asking for a pardon from the penitentiary. And so that was in October 1896. Um, This is the last record of Margaret Hardy that we have. We don't even know if she was granted a pardon, if she was declared sane, uh, if she was kept insane. Uh, We don't know when she was released from the hospital, if she was at all. Um, you know, I suppose that all of that is all kind of up to our imagination. So Margaret Hardy will go down as one of the most infamous women who stayed at the Idaho State Penitentiary. And I might argue one of the most hated women Oh yeah. in Idaho's history because of what she did. I mean, it's just absolutely horrifying. Yeah. So from the October 9th article from the Idaho Daily Statesman, it called her, quote, a black-hearted old hag. Wow. And that's, uh, that is Margaret Hardy, number 422. Wow. Our second female inmate. Oh, my gosh. Well, good work, Skye. That... I've been really curious about Margaret, and I didn't know she was an, like mm-hmm. orphaned at such a young age. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I learned a lot about her today. That's... I know. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. She, you know, she's interesting, and I think there is a little bit of sympathy to be had with the morphine withdrawals, but also you do have to remember that she poured carbolic acid on a child's face. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. Which is uh, horrible. There are only, I'd say, maybe one, maybe two other women I can think of whose crimes I consider on that same level of uh, her horrificity. That's yeah. not a word, but like... Horrendous. You know, the, just the just, horrific nature yeah. of of how bad that crime was. And, you know, we don't have more details than that, which I think is fine, because those details are bad enough. Right. But, yeah, that is, that's Margaret Hardy. Wow. Well, I'm, I don't know how we always do this, but we find two very relatable figures. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's fun, as usual, to learn about these guys and to, to understand that they're, they're not so different than us in, in 2019. Yeah. In the, you know, 21st century. Absolutely. You know, 100 years later, there are people still going through their same stuff. All right. Well, do your own time. And do your own number. We'll see you all next week. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. 
If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.